This is loudspeaker. Please don't go. I need you so. I. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the podcast about finding joy through feminism and living your best feminist life. And happy week after our country survived an armed insurrection, an attempt to overthrow a free and fair election. How's everyone doing? Legitimate question. I feel a lot of pressure to say something really clever or insightful about the attack on the Capitol. And a lot of people have already said a lot of things. But the thing I haven't heard that I just wanted to say, because if I'm feeling it, I bet other people are feeling it. And I will offer a bit of a content warning here for sexual violence. What I want to say is that this violent invasion of the Capitol building, the looting specifically to send a message, the disrespect of people's personal chambers, their desks, which are very intimate spaces where people keep their personal things, that man putting his feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk and pointing at his gun, which also just happened to be right next to his crotch, All of it smacked of rape culture and this colonial conquer and pillage fantasy, 100%. And it was violent in and of itself, but it also felt sexually violent to me as well. And I just wanted to name that because obviously there were straight up white nationalists there and white supremacy pervaded the whole entire event. But those things are intertwined with conquering and rape and misogyny as well. And that doesn't get said explicitly a lot. So I just wanted to say it. And also to let you know that if you were having any kind of reaction to the events and and felt unsettled and needed support around that, um, your feelings are 100% valid. and, And I'm with you. And I hope that you do find that support and let me know how I can help. And with that, I am very happy to shift gears entirely and share with you an interview from not very long ago, but before all of this happened. Um, And it's an interview with someone who really embodies the themes of this podcast, finding joy through feminism and living your best feminist life. And she was, in fact, my collaborator on the Best Feminist Life celebration from last January. Amelia Ruby, creator and host of 50 Feminist Dates, and now author of a fabulous new book called 50 Feminist Mantras. If you've listened to the show, you've met Amelia before, and you know what an inspiration she is. So please enjoy our conversation, and be sure to listen all the way to the end to hear about a free event I'm co-hosting in February, and I'd love it if you could come. I would love to start off by hearing your version of the history of this book, because I know that it's been, it's been a long relationship and I know it really came from like a deep part of you and has had multiple different formats. So can you just give us some of the backstory? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me back on the pod, Adrian. I'm so happy. <laughs> so happy to be here. I love when we get to chat and reconnect. Um, me too. And I'm really excited to be doing that about my book. So 50 Feminist Mantras started in October of 2016 and in a really interesting and fun and wild way has been like 
bookended by the start and finish of the Trump administration, it seems like. But it goes so far beyond that. So I started writing feminist mantras on Halloween of 2016 because I had been taking a bunch of women's and gender studies courses in my grad program. I had been meeting a whole lot of rad feminist activists in Chicago and at the same time was watching like the rise of Hillary Clinton's campaign. And I really just wanted to open a kind of conversation on my Instagram about like, what is feminism? What does it mean when we like laud Hillary Clinton as a feminist candidate? What do we want from feminism that maybe isn't aligned with a lot of the political actions that Hillary Clinton and the Clinton family have um, done, done to us in many instances. So I started Feminist Mantra Monday on my Instagram to just like have some more conversations about feminism, bring some of what I knew to the table, invite people to think about it in their own lives through the form of a weekly mantra. And then like literally on mantra number three or four, Trump won the election. And it went from being this sort of gentle form of critical exploration to like a deep need for (laughs) um, healing, like a solve, a balm to just like find community and brace for the next four years and make it through. So I kept doing Feminist Mantra Monday for a little over a year. And then I compiled those mantras into a book with different writing prompts. And I self-published 50 feminist mantras in must have been fall of 2017. I cannot say enough that I loved self-publishing. It was such a joy. And I got to share that book with my whole community. I did a launch event in Chicago and a launch event in um, Brooklyn and just had so much fun talking about mantras and helping people integrate feminist values into their lives. And I have to say that like even in 2017 and early 2018, when I was doing these events, just that the cultural conversation around feminism felt so different than it does now. Between when I started writing feminist mantras in 2016 and now so much has changed in just what the general public knows about feminism and social justice and the value. I'm, I'm really excited to see that the values that I've been talking about in these mantras for four years, I think when I first would talk about them felt really radical and a little out there to people. And now I think people have really like learned to grapple with them and want to go yeah. deeper. Yeah. So that I, I love and has been a big component of fast forward you know, a year and a half from when I put out the self-published book and I was approached by my publisher, Andrews McMeal, to rework that manuscript into a journal that they would publish. But yeah, the book came out in October. It's really funny to me that this book, like I said, like the first, the project started right before Trump was elected. And then this book, this final version of that came out right before he was unelected, lost his office. (laughs) was replaced. Um, so, you know, like I, I like to say in interviews, like this book was never about Trump's election or this presidential administration, but it very much is about the ways that feminism has evolved in, over the past four years, which are powerful and important. And it's just 50 Feminist Mantras is all about trying to invite people into that work and invite them to bring feminist values, which a lot of people see feminism as like something that's like in their politics. And I want them to see it a lot more as that and something that's in their personal life and something that is how you live every single day. And feminism for me is a part of 
all the actions I take and the mantras help me embed those feminist intentions in my actions. Well, that actually is uh, another question that I have for you, which is why mantras? What, what role do, do mantras play in your personal feminism and in the way that you, the lens through which you see the world? I think that when I, you know, often when I get questions like this, I try to think back to like the originating moment. And I don't totally know how mantras became so important to me. But I think because I've always been a writer, I've always been a storyteller. I love language. That's just been part of like a deep truth of my life since I was a very young child. Mantras for me are just like this potent crystallization of words where you can have like a word or two words. And the mantras in the book, I'll say too, are I write mantras in a very specific way that often people are unfamiliar with. So, you know, mantras can be anything. I think that like they can be any type of phrase. They can be any length. I think of mantras as just kind of like small words or sayings that you recite to yourself to as a reminder or as a, to set an intention. And the mantras in the book, I write through this formula I always talk about as verb plus value. So all the mantras in the book start with a verb because they're really about action. They're about doing feminist things. And that verb is always connected then to a feminist value that I think in some way resists a patriarchal, capitalist, white supremacist, imperialist, colonial value in our society. And so... I noticed when early reviewers got the book, I think a lot of them expected feminist mantras to be like Leslie Nope quotes or something or like, like, fuck the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And those certainly are feminist mantras. I, I love those too. I have plenty of like slogan mugs and keychains and stuff around my house that are feminist mantras. But, you know, the book is so grounded in cultivating feminist values to live a more feminist life. And so the mantras in the book are that verb and value structure. And that helps me align my actions with my beliefs, with my politics. And that's really helps me stay in my integrity. What I like about how you approach these mantras too is, and I I can see how if you were, if you had a very specific definition of feminism that was highly politicized. You might not understand some of the mantras in the book. However, what I love about what you're doing is that you're trying to, I think, broaden the definition of feminism so it's not just marching in the street or it's not just reading books from a gender women's studies syllabus, Mm -hmm. that it is, as you say, daily action, that it is the way that, that you approach life, and which I think is also a much more accessible definition of feminism too, because mm-hmm. not everyone has the time and the resources to take gender women's studies class or march in the street. And there, that doesn't mean that they're any less feminist in yeah. their, in their day-to-day lives. So I think that that's beautiful. Tell me a, a bit about, you mentioned being a writer and a storyteller. What is the relation? And this, this book is very writing based. I mean, as you say, mm-hmm. it's a journal, it's encouraging the the journaler to tell their own story through these reflections and prompts. What is the relationship between feminism and writing for you? Not necessarily writing in an academic sense, although I know you, you do that as well, but just the act of writing itself. There's a very long history in, I think in like the feminist tradition of telling and writing stories. And I think a lot of that is based in 
telling and writing like our own biographical stories and claiming the realities of our lives living under patriarchy and in naming and sharing that. So I think um, all sorts of things. I mean, early slave narratives. So I think stories like Harriet Jacobs writing and then Sojourner Truth's speeches, I think, fall in this, I think. And then I think of people like Virginia Woolf and A Room of One's Own. I think of writer philosophers like Helene Sikhsu, who writes about how about women's writing or feminine writing as like a mode of the recreation of the self that acts in resistance to patriarchy. One of the mantras in the book is write yourself. And it comes from this tradition of women and, of course, gender nonconforming and non-binary folks and trans folks and two-spirit folks and, like, anyone who's living a gendered experience that patriarchy doesn't accept, those people sharing their experiences and themselves and writing because writing travels. And now that we have such beautiful technology, voices can travel too, like podcasts can travel. So I'm not sure it's always all about writing, but one of the mantras is write yourself as an invitation to take your own life story seriously, to see it as important, to see it as valuable, to claim it as your own, to, you know, a lot of my writing I've done in my life was, was journaling. And it was done not to like tell my story, but to figure out how my story didn't make sense with the narratives I was fed for what my life should look like. And so for me, writing often is like, it's so steeped in narrative and it's like me being like, okay, here's, here's the storyline I thought I was going to play out and here's what's happening. And that is, you know, the space in between that is a space that writing fills. It's a space that feminism finally healed for me is, is healing. It's not done, but, um, and so I think writing is that act of reclamation against patriarchal narratives. And I find a lot of power in that. I don't think everyone needs to. I'm a Gemini moon. I'm super intellectual in my life, in my emotions. One of the tasks I've set for myself coming out of this, you know, four year long writing process is to learn like embodiment practices that can function like this. I mean, I think there are lots of people who talk about embodiment itself as a form of writing, but also like now that I've gone through this really intellectual process, I'm working on like integrating that knowledge into my body, which requires a a different type of practice that isn't just writing. But for me, it all started with writing. Well, and I think that too, if you're someone who is kind of new to the process of discovering what writing, the role that that could fill for you in terms of, as you say, sort of testifying to your own story or, or believing that that your story is important, this book is a really nice tool to be able to explore that. And, and as you say, maybe it will be and maybe it won't be, but there's a lot of opportunities in here to just look at your life in a lot of different ways that I think that a, just a blank journal doesn't really, doesn't bring forth. So I, I just yeah. wanted to sort of highlight that feature. What are some mantras that you have found yourself gravitating toward recently during this oh so unique year that we're living through right now <laughs> oh yeah if only I had like the perfect mantra yes, for 2020 can you, can you just fix that for us <laughs> just drop that that perfect yeah. mantra yes just for a quick like 16.99 you can buy my book and it will exactly. solve It'll the solve whole year everything <laughs> um you know I the mantras I'm drawn to this year kind of have two themes 
And they are all about slowing down and getting more interdependent because those have been two things I think this year has kind of forced or brought into question. It's done both simultaneously. Like I, when I think back to like March and April and early pandemic times, you know, everyone's life, like suddenly it felt like ground to a halt. And we had this like slowness that was suddenly put upon us. Um, And that was challenging. And then you had people like me who like in March and April, I was finishing my dissertation. I didn't slow down at all. I just suddenly never left my house. And so I think like the tempo of our lives is something I've thought a lot about this year. So, you know, mantras in the book that are about slowing down would be things like expand or grow soft or sit in the mess is a good one for slowing down. I really like that one. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And cultivate stillness is another one. So I think like I've really, really this year been thinking a lot about the speed of my life. And I've made some really drastic life changes like moving from Chicago to Lincoln, Nebraska to slow my life down. And the other theme of interdependence that I I think this year has just, I think it's been all about that because again, back in March and April, like we all got siloed into our individual homes, those of us who are lucky enough to have them and felt really isolated. And then we had this like painful, glorious, like racial uprising in June across the country that like brought so many people into the streets and made us really feel the reality of our interdependence differently after feeling so isolated from each other. And then we had a whole summer of actions and work together while trying to navigate the pandemic and trying not to share breath with each other. And then, you know, we had this whole election. So I just think this year has been all about realizing that like the, the myth of independence that permeates this country and recognizing that we don't really have good models for interdependence. And we all need to learn a lot more about mutual aid and we all need to learn just what interdependent, how interdependence can function in our lives, how we can take care of each other as an act of taking care of ourselves. So mantras like, for me, mantras like imagine radically and reconnect and craft community are all about interdependence. And for anyone who does the book, works through the book over the course of the year, they'll eventually realize that in every season, there is an activity that is very clearly just like, think about the people in your life, write down their names. How are you going to connect with them? (laughs) Which is Amelia has an agenda. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Basically, I'm just trying to make everybody some friends, I think. But um, it's such a basic exercise. And when I was editing the book, I kept being like, maybe this is really boring. I don't know. But I just think it's so easy to not talk to the people in your life, especially this year. So I wanted to just add like the first step toward interdependence is forming relationships. And we have to do that better, like as a society, I think. Yeah. And that takes care and time. And when we're all running around constantly feeling busy, or we don't have some like, quote unquote, reason to reach out, then those relationships can just become totally stagnant. So I actually really appreciate the reminder. I think it's I think it's great. Let's talk about the visuals of this book. Listeners, I'll post pictures. And if you follow Amelia, you have seen the pictures. But I just want to describe it because I think it's really, I think that 
the way that the book looks and feels actually to me really reflects a lot of what's inside. And I think that that's important. Mm. So it's like, I don't know what you call this kind of cover. It's like a cross between a hard and a soft cover. It's a really, it's not a paperback, but it's this really nicely bound thing that's perfect for writing in. Cause sometimes if you have a hardcover journal, it can be a little, like if you're trying to like snuggle up in bed and write with it, it's like too pointy, <laughs> yeah. you know, and this is really nice. It's got nice rounded corners, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, the cover is this beautiful peach color, which is reflected in a lot of the marketing that you've been doing for the book, which I think is awesome. And then it has these lovely line drawing illustrations all the way through. Can you tell us a bit about the illustrator and how those images came about? Yeah. So my friend Emily Janes designed the cover and illustrations of this book. She also did the cover of the self-published version of this book, which had this sort of like line drawing um, icons of the new cover, but in a different layout. So shout out to Emily because she is an incredibly talented designer and illustrator. And when I got the book deal, she was the only person I wanted to work with to reimagine the original cover of the book into a whole new form. So we like kind of reworked the cover and then the illustrations inside, I mean, they're really meant to evoke a spirit of, I think, openness and play and reflection which is kind of the spirit that I always take to my journaling practice. And they feature, you know, a lot of feminine figures of all like shapes, sizes, races, Um, and then also a lot of plants and a lot of kind of nature imagery, uh, which is another theme that runs throughout the book, which is like, which relates to the book is organized by season. So there's really this like impetus or this um, push toward a kind of more seasonal way of living a reflection on how the planet changes and our lives can change in response to it. But yeah, I just can't rave about Emily enough. I love how the the visuals for the book turned out. Yeah, it's awesome. And just to point out that although the book is broken out into seasons, it's not in a way that's really like, you have to start on January 1st, and you have to, you know, like, if you pick this book up in the spring, you could start in the spring pages if you wanted to, but it's not, yeah. it's not a real, um, it's not like a planner, right? You can, you can really yeah. sort of jump in at any point. Before we move on to the next segment of the interview, I am just going to jump in and mention again that Amelia and I talked in November after the election, but before things went totally off the rails. So we pretty much knew Biden had won, but there were still recounts going on. And it's interesting to me that we both predicted something horrible was going to happen around the electoral college votes being counted. But honestly, while what happened was extreme, it just wasn't that surprising because we already knew there was no low when it came to Trump and his loyalists. But if you're wondering why that was not part of our conversation, now you have that context. How have you been feeling since the election? I... I, I think I sent some some version of this text message like a dozen times over the last week. I don't think I've ever had this particular mix of such extreme emotions at the same yeah. time ever that I can remember. Yeah. 
I'm glad you asked me this question because no, mo- pretty much no one has, and I haven't had to formulate an answer. I mean, you know, electoral politics is not like my realm of organizing, so it's not, it's like a place I participate, but not one that I, it's not where I go to for change or for like my vision of the feminist world I want to live in. So I think that, you know, I, I kind of keep a distance from a lot of election stuff to some degree, even when I will be pretty vocal about who I'm voting for and why I'm voting. Um, so yeah, so I, I went into like the election with some less intense feelings than some of the people in my life. I think I also, you know, I grew up in North Carolina. I'm now living in Nebraska. I've been surrounded by a lot of conservative Republicans my whole life. So when Trump was elected in 2016, I was one of the few people in my Chicago world that was like not at all surprised. It did not hit me like a... I remember the day before the election, I had a conversation with someone in my life who at that point told me they had voted for Trump and that did surprise me. And as soon as that person told me, I was like, oh. He's probably going to win. Yeah. Yeah. I just knew. I was like, oh, if this... I it, And it's not that that person has that much weight. It was just like, oh, I know the demographic that you represent. And like, wow, I, it's really sunk in that that's what was going to happen and it's what happened. So for this election, I just like carried a lot of that feeling until the weekend before the election. And I was like, I am going to choose at this moment to believe Biden can win. So energetically, I am trying to support the side I want and not just like protecting myself from disappointment. I think a lot of times I don't hope for things because I don't want to be disappointed. And I have so little faith in the Democratic Party that I didn't really want to have much hope (laughs) but um so anyway that was my mindset leading up to the election you know I actually I'm because I moved in early October I had to do a lot of work to like get registered to vote on time here and like voting was a whole process I had to go through so I was committed to it I just had a lot of I think fear and distrust around what might happen and then and then all your fears and distrust (laughs) turned out to be warranted (laughs) it's just like Yeah, I don't know. Like last week to me is just a blur of like stress and sleeplessness. I couldn't even have told you how I was feeling. This week where I'm at is feeling a little more secure in Biden's victory, feeling some fear that everything's going to change when the electors vote, (laughs) like that that's going to somehow go horribly wrong. So I got some fear. Like, I, I feel like I can't really believe until the inauguration happens. And I'll be like, okay. That's how I we're feel, in. too. I'll believe it when when you're, like, seated in the Oval Office and Trump has been, like, physically removed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think there's definitely that, like, kind of hanging over me. You know, I also just have such mixed feelings about Biden and Harris. I mean, I am glad that they won. I obviously, I hope it's obvious to not want Trump to be president again. I feel just kind of caught between people in my life who are like very critical of Biden, rightfully so, and like just very cynical about the win. And then people in my life who are so overjoyed (laughs) that Biden's won and I don't know how to fit in between that. And it's why I like deactivated my Twitter a couple days ago. I was like, maybe I'm just done with this world. Yeah, I know. I, I know exactly what you mean, especially because 
you know, having Kamala Harris in the White House is this historic moment, is this like mm -hmm. moment when, you know, multiple layers of representation are happening for people across the country who have never had that before. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to diminish the importance of that at all. And then when I think about how her career bumps up against my own beliefs as an abolitionist feminist, mm -hmm. that it doesn't fall apart, but it it makes it much harder for me to feel like really enthusiastic about it. And, you know, and Biden was never my candidate. He, and like, it was like at the very, very, very bottom of the list for me. And so, yeah, it's just, I feel yeah. exactly the same way. Like, yes, obviously I'm happy that Trump didn't get reelected, but do I think that this is the ticket that is going to lead us to liberation? Absolutely not. Um, I think that there's a, there's actually a real danger in losing some of the momentum that we've, as a society, have generated, particularly yeah. around healthcare and racial justice in the last six months. It makes a huge, huge difference in people's everyday lives to live under a Biden presidency and a Trump presidency. But I want more. Like, I want Medicare for all. I want student debt relief. I want... I don't want to just like go back into the Paris climate agreement or accord. I, I want the green new deal. <laughs> like, and Biden has never come out for those things. Like, yes, he's put out this list of kind of like five executive orders. He wants to pass on day one that are impressive to people. But those to me are just like rolling back Trump's executive orders. So yeah. I'm glad he's going to do that, but I haven't seen any, actual progressive agenda of like new things that will be happening from his administration. And I feel like a Debbie Downer when I do that. I just like, until he does things that really do seem to open up the space of the world I want to live in, not just this sort of like centrist equality world that the Democratic Party pushes, I won't like, I don't know. Gosh, I feel like just you're not going to wear your Biden Harris T-shirt. <laughs> no, I don't have one. There's still Bernie signs in our windows. In my yeah. house. <laughs> so. I know I still have my Bernie mug from 2016. I switched over to Warren for 2020, but you know, I think that's great. I um, I am not like a diehard Bernie bro. Although I will say that being in Nebraska now, there's still a Bernie 2020 bumper sticker on my car, and in Chicago, like I never. No one ever mentioned it, but in Nebraska, people mention it a lot. To me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine. It's a conversation starter. Yeah, I want them to have healthcare too. <laughs> That's right. Let's check in about fifty feminist states real quick, if you don't yeah. mind. Um, <laughs> yeah. I know that some of your travel plans obviously had to change due to COVID, but you've still been releasing episodes. So tell us about some of your favorite episodes from this last season. Yeah. So 2020 has been a weird year for 50 Feminist States, which people who tuned in before have heard about. But for those who haven't, it's just the podcast that I host and produce where formerly I was traveling around the U.S. to interview feminist activists and artists and podcasters like Adrian. Um, and this year, actually, I there was a whole season five road trip planned for March. I was watching everything happening with COVID-19 very closely because I had a plane ticket booked to go start in Colorado and get a car there and drive around. 
And I flew out the morning after Trump declared the national emergency. And I got out there on a Saturday morning and then made my way back on a Sunday afternoon. (laughs) Basically, like, it's hard to remember now, but like that all happened so fast and it was so unclear what was safe and unsafe. But what happened that weekend that made up my mind that was information we didn't have before was the um, we got all the stats out of, I believe it was. South Korea about community spread with her people who are not contag- not presenting symptoms, um, not symptomatic. And so at that point, I was like, oh, I'm not going to travel everywhere and potentially spread this everywhere I go. So that got canceled. And I did a remote season for season five. And I think one of my favorite conversations was with Erica Nelson about fly fishing for equity, which was an incredibly fun conversation about indigenous fishing practices in what's now the state of Colorado and like game fishing practices and Erica's work to learn how to fly fish, to share that knowledge. It was really, really cool. And, um, her Instagram handle is awkward angler and she works with this group called Brown folks fishing that I love. So that like kicked off season five in the most, the most fun way. I talked to two feminist artists in New Mexico, Sarah Stoller and Rosemary Meza Desplas who were just so interesting and have such different medium in their art practices, but both like create and teach art deeply embedded in feminine identity and feminist politics and values. Um, And then more recently, I did a few kind of one-off episodes for season six, even though the podcast, I really put it on hiatus after season five when I did virtual interviews for the planned road trip. I had a couple of just really great people reach out. And so I re- I got to talk to Susanna Barkataki about decolonizing yoga. And she is just an amazing practitioner and, you know, an Indian woman who's really invested in unpacking what it means to practice yoga in the West for herself and for white people in the West. So I was just like, we had such a cool conversation about what what decolonizing means, what it looks like in yoga. Um, And yeah, those are some of my favorites, just a couple. That's awesome. Well, thank you for updating us on that. And y'all listen to 50 Feminist States and subscribe if you don't. It is an awesome, awesome podcast that you will love. I'm interested to hear a bit about your plans for the coming year and how you would like to see feminists embracing some of the opportunities and challenges that are coming our way? Oh, what a good question. That's a kind of a double barrel question. Yeah, it's okay. I, I can I can handle it. <laughs> um, writing a dissertation did nothing if not prepare me to answer a two-part question. Ah, fantastic. <laughs> or maybe defending a dissertation. Um, you know, in 2021, I am op- uh, cautiously optimistically looking forward to Biden being inaugurated to some kind of to the repeal, the executive orders that will repeal some of the really damaging things that Trump has done in office. And then what I hope, what I think feminists have to be doing at that point is getting even clearer about our vision of what can happen in the next four years, at least, and what we want, and then figuring out, okay, what's the thing we're going to work on, right? So you and I both talk about being abolitionist feminists, um, I talk a lot about like so many aspects of my feminist politics. And I think for me, you know, are we going to fight for the $15 min- 
minimum wage federally. That's a great fight that a lot of, I think, feminists could attach to. Are we going to push even farther and go back for like a national free childcare agenda? <laughs> That's another one. You know, I think that my goal for 2021 is just to put everything back on the table once we have Biden in office and just be like, what do I, what do we want? I want to be visioning that for myself and with the feminists I'm surrounded by in my local environment and virtually as friends. And then where can I plug in to actually fight for something? I think that one of our challenges for 2021 is getting off the internet. Like it's just like, there's so much good work being done on the internet. You can share your vision there. You can talk about what you want, what you're doing there, but we actually have to be doing the doing too. So that's a, something I see as a personal goal for me because as someone who just moved, I'm not plugged in to my local scene um, the way I was where I formerly lived. And so, yeah, I think getting Biden actually into Biden and Harris actually into office and then putting it, everything back on the table for the feminist vision we want and figuring out what we're really going to fight for in the next four years, because I don't think, it's still going to take a lot of fighting to make it happen, right? Like we're not just going to get Medicare for all (laughs) to fight for it. That's what we want. Yeah. They don't seem to be handing that out. I want them to, (laughs) I want them to, too. (laughs) I know. Like childcare. Yeah. And, um, you know, and there are just so many battles to fight. So the way I deal with that is always just like trying to pick a place to plug in, right? Because there's also going to be tons of important work to do around reproductive justice and protecting the right to an abortion in the U.S. Like there's a, there's a lot of work that's still going to be done. So I think it's about recuperation before we go into pushing to the left. <laughs> Love it. Well, is there anything we have not talked about that you would like to say just about you or the book or 50 <laughs> Feminist States? state of the Um, world you know I think I just want to say thank you to you for hosting this podcast and for being one of my many collaborators this year and I just want to name that and also invite other people to like I don't know make feminist friendships (laughs) reach out to people you're interested DM me on Instagram whatever like I don't I'm not, I don't know if Adrienne wants you in her DMs, but you can be in my DMs. You you can DM me too. That's fine. (laughs) Um, I like feminist friends too. Yeah. I think that like nothing has changed my life more than the real, the feminist relationships that I've cultivated over the past, you know, four years of having this book and this podcast and really kind of putting my proverbial stake in the ground of like flag in the ground of what I stand for and who I want to be surrounded by. And it's such a beautiful thing, right? Like I sent you a random email asking if you wanted to be on my podcast and then we did that. And then a few months later you sent me a random email. It's like, do you want to do this month long email series with me? And like, I just, I just wanted to name like the beauty of those types of relationships and the magic and the power that they hold and invite other people to form their own, ideally with people in their communities, but also with us, if you're listening and you're like, yeah, I want to be friends, come be friends. Come be friends. 
Amelia really means it when she says she wants to be friends. And she's even created this wonderful text message campaign where she will send you a feminist mantra each Monday that you can use to journal or reflect on throughout the week. So go to her website, ameliaruby.com. I'll link it in the show notes. And click on the tab that says free feminist mantras. You'll see instructions for how to get in on all the text message action. And of course, I highly encourage everyone to buy her book, 50 Feminist Mantras. January is a great month to dive in, of course, but like we said, you can really start anytime. A huge thank you to Amelia and to all of you for listening, and especially to everyone who participated in the New Year's giveaway. I got to meet lots of new faces on Instagram and donated $100 to Jews of Color Initiative, so that felt really good. And finally, I want to invite those of you in the audience who are sober or sober curious to an event I'm hosting with my good friend Erin, Sober Pilates Mom on Instagram, on February 12th. It's called My Sober Valentine, and it's going to be a movement-based class including Pilates and yoga, and also includes meditation and some reflection, all focused around the themes of self-love and self-trust. To sign up, go to somasobriety.com. That's S-O-M-A sobriety.com. It's totally free and you do not have to be a yogi or have accumulated sobriety to attend. Just come relax and breathe with some other cool people and be your own Valentine. Feminist Hot Dogs theme music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. Thanks again for listening. And as always, love yourself and love your bodies. This is Loudspeaker.